The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network show and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Well, this week, Mrs. Taylor and I are in Portugal visiting my wife's aging mother. Because I'm out of the country, I have chosen to pass along my remarks from an interview I did with Laura Ellis, the show host of another Voice America show, namely Because There's More. Laura's show airs every Monday at 9 o'clock a.m. Eastern Time. It is about how to make good decisions, and I recommend you check it out. I think she brings along with her some excellent insights into decision-making. Well, I do want to thank each of you for listening to this show, and I want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show are Avino Silver and Gold Mines, Novo Resources, RN. Calinex Resources, and Balmoral Resources. Now, here's my interview with show host Laura Ellis. My guest today is, first and foremost, a highly accomplished show host on Voice America's Business Network, where my show is also broadcast. And my reason for starting with this accomplishment is due to the fact that his show was one of the two shows I listened to extensively to decide whether or not to start my own show. So I'm here today, and that should tell you how much I was inspired by his show. His name is Jay Taylor, and I'm delighted that he agreed to appear on Because There's More today. Welcome to the show, Jay. Oh, it's my pleasure to be with you, Laura. Thank you. Um, So what I'd like to do, I would like to uh, share more with our listeners about you, if that's okay. Um, Today, you are the editor of Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks newsletter and host of the web-based radio show Turning Hard Times into Good Times, both a result of your very avid interest in how gold has played an important role in the U.S.'s monetary history. 
I know you're going to tell us more of what sparked your interest in the first place, but I know that in 1981, you began publishing a gold-oriented newsletter while also starting to study geology to supplement your MBA in finance and investments. And that throughout your career, you worked as a banker, including holding a job in the mining and metals group at ING Barings in New York. But in 1997, you resigned from ING Barings and devoted yourself full-time to researching mining and technology stocks, writing your newsletter, and assisting companies in raising venture capital. And in March of 2009, you began hosting what is today the most popular show on Voice America Business Channel, a show titled, as I mentioned earlier, Turning Hard Times into Good Times, with feature, which features high-profile CEOs of public companies, as well as some of the best-known Wall Street analysts, authors, and political and economic thinkers. You're also a frequent guest on CNBC, Fox, Bloomberg, and BNN, and guest speaker at various mining conferences in the U.S., Canada, Switzerland, and Asia. Wow, that's pretty impressive. How did all this start, Jay? Well, I guess you you uh, you mentioned that, that gold is a key to it uh, to a great extent, and and uh, going way back into my probably decades before you were born, Laura, I was a, a sophomore in, in college in nineteen nineteen sixty seven, and I had a history professor that was absolutely convinced that there was a correlation between the work ethic of a nation and the morality of a nation uh, with the debasing of its currency. So when countries decide that they want to take the easy way out and print money to expand or grow or to have a party, uh, that usually is not a good sign, at least in the long run. So I got very interested in, in, that, in that subject and that idea, and I held it in my head during the, 19, uh, during the 1970s. Uh, and, and watch what was going on with the Vietnam War uh, in nineteen in the late 1960s. Of course, uh, Lyndon Johnson's so, a Great Society program, we were introducing another, uh, another uh, say, increase in socialism in America under those programs. But the politicians didn't want to tell the American people they had to pay for it. They wanted the American people to think that they were giving them goodies for nothing. And so, uh, and so the uh, the United States started printing money to pay for Vietnam and for socialism. Uh, and at that time, yet Laura, we still had the what was known as the Bretton Woods system, in which the mm-hmm. uh, price of gold was fixed at thirty five dollars an ounce, and all the country's currencies were fixed. So, if various countries had a lot of dollars, they could send the dollars back to the United States and get an, uh, thirty get an ounce of gold uh, for every thirty five dollars they sent back. Well, uh, as the United States started to create more and more money floating around the globe, uh, Charles de Gaulle of France decided that he wanted to, to, to do that. He wanted the real thing. He didn't, he didn't want money that could be created infinitely out of nothing, so he sent his dollars back. And the gold started leaving the coffers of the United States very, very rapidly. So I, I started watching this and realized that this could not end well. And we saw the price of gold rise as I expected it would rise. Uh, I didn't know how high it would rise, but in the late from the 1960s, uh, at $35 an ounce, when I heard the good professor's warnings about debasing a currency, gold rose then by 1980 
to $850. So from 35 to 850 So this was really interesting to me because I started seeing what was happening. I started looking at the social attitudes of Americans at the same time. More and more people wanted, uh, uh, you know, Americans wanted more and more for less and less effort. This is what uh, Dr. Uh, Yoder predicted would happen. So sociologically, it was very interesting to me. But I said, uh, maybe I need to try to find a way to profit from this, gold mining companies perhaps. And I started... Uh, even as I worked as a credit analyst and lending officer at uh, institutions in New York, I started following this story and started writing as a hobby my newsletter back in 1981, as you noted. And uh, and so the newsletter really sort of led to um, uh, to, to my, my biggest interest. So I, I worked as a banker for a number of years in 1997, left and went into uh, to, to devote full time to what I really loved. I took a big cut in pay at that time. My wife was working, so I've, I'm thankful to her. She allowed me to do that. Uh, and uh, so from there, I guess it went to my, I was recognized uh, by Tacey Trump, who invited me uh, at Voice America. And I thank Tacey for that because I, I didn't really think of myself as a, uh, as a host for a show because I had been one that was interviewed a lot, but not a person that did a lot of interviewing. But it's it sort of, I, I figured that maybe I could, um, uh, could you know, take the interest that I have and go to guests that shared similar interests uh, and use them to help educate myself as well as my listeners about what was really trans- transpiring as opposed to what we are told is, being, is happening in the mainstream media. So uh, when Tacey Trump invited me um, in, in March or before that, early in 2009, uh, I, I thought about it and decided to do it, and it's uh, it, it's been, as you pointed out, it's been very successful. That's amazing. That's an amazing story. And let's hope that Tacey is the common denominator here, because as you know, Tacey is also my producer. So I'm uh, hoping to follow in your footsteps. Thank I you hope for you do. sharing. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I wish you all the success, and I, I uh, really admire what you're doing. Yeah, thank you very much. It's uh, it's a lot of fun. I mean, there's no doubt that there's uh, work to be done behind it, but I'm really enjoying it. You know that my show is uh, about decision-making. It's focusing on an, on the angle of decision-making. And you mentioned something very interesting to me, the, the combination of the uh, cross between morality and welfare in the society. Uh, what... What attracted you to that aspect of it? I mean, uh, you, you kind of explained that was a social aspect, but what do you think was most important for you from the early days of uh, hearing uh, the doctor talk about it and to today where you're actually taking a playing a very uh, active role? Yeah. Um, well, I suppose it had a lot to do with my upbringing. I was brought up in a fairly religious environment in a Mennonite home, and I think we were taught sort of basic Judeo-Christian values, the Ten Commandments and so forth, how you're supposed to treat your fellow man. And uh, one of those commandments is uh, thou shalt not steal. I think any anybody knows that that is one of the Ten Commandments that was handed down in our Judeo-Christian uh, heritage. And uh, and, and certainly other religions share that view, too, that property rights and, and the right of people to, to have what they've earned uh, is, you know, it's just sort of a natural right, I think, that people sort of recognize. Uh, and, and so what I think that uh, what I saw happening, essentially, is when you create money out of nothing, what you're doing, uh, what the government does and the central banks do when they do that is that they essentially uh, are robbing the people that actually create the wealth. 
I like to say it's the miners, the manufacturers, the farmers, the inventors, people that actually create, create things that are of value to society. Well, what's been happening, especially since 1971 when Richard Nixon uh, debunked the gold-backed system, and we can talk more about that if there's time, but what, what happened since then, you'll note that that's when the credit and debt started to rise very dramatically. I can remember the time before credit cards in America were even uh, a common thing. I can remember some of the elders in the church that I attended uh, talking about, well, you think it's not a good idea, this credit card thing. And some people said, well, yeah, it's nothing wrong with it. If you, you, know, you get your Getty uh, credit card, you can go buy your gas uh, for your car, you pay it at the end of the month, what's wrong with that? And so that was the thinking. Uh, and, but there was this whole notion of essentially robbing, taking property from someone else. And what most Americans do not understand, including PhDs from Harvard, Princeton, and Yale, it hasn't dawned on them, that in fact what, uh, what really happens is that when central banks print money, they reallocate wealth from those people that create it, the miners, the manufacturers, the farmers, and the inventors, and it's siphoned off into larger and larger government programs and large, and we saw it, of course, in spades after the financial crisis where the banks who did dastardly things, nobody went to jail for criminal acts, and then these guys get bailed out by who? The average people, the people that are producing that wealth. Uh, and so I think we've seen Dr. Uh, Peyton Yoder's ideas uh, come home to roost in in uh, in spades, but he was basing that on his study of history. Throughout history, uh, it is common that people try to get something for nothing. It's it's sort of our human nature to wanna to wanna get more for less effort. Sure. Uh, and so and so that's what I think. So uh, there was a strong ingrained notion of of morality. I think that was part of my childhood growing up. And then of course it was a, it was a Mennonite college that I went to, Dr. Peyton Yoder. Uh, talked about uh, about this uh, not so much from the morality as he was looking at history and what happens to nations when they decide to debase their currency. Uh, and, and so, you know, certainly what I'm saying now, Laura, is not commonly accepted, and and it's in fact quite uh, openly rejected by the mainstream and by you know all of those uh, uh, PhDs from Princeton, Harvard, and Yale. But it is absolutely true in my view, and I think we're seeing it uh, we're seeing it in spades right now. Yeah. And, and this is a fascinating, uh, um, you know, session on, on history, on finances. It's amazing. I, I'm sure that uh, I would personally like to follow up and, and learn more even beyond this show. There's so much information you're sharing with us and so much wisdom in, in what you're saying. Going back to uh, your choice to start a newsletter, why do that? Why not do something else? What was behind that? I suppose it was that I wanted to share what I believe to be true, and uh, and also uh, I started investing in mining companies in the 1970s when gold was rising from 35 to 850, and found it to be a very exciting, uh, very exciting sector to invest in. Uh, although there have been periods of time when it's most unexciting. Uh, sector to invest in, such as uh, the last five years. It's not been very very much fun. But when gold goes up, you see the mining companies that find the gold, if, uh, if the gold price goes from $35 to 850 their costs might go up some, but generally not nearly as much as the, uh, as the price of gold. So the profit margins rise very dramatically. So when you're in a bull market for gold, uh, mining companies, especially those that find new deposits, uh, the uh, the appreciation in the price of those companies and the value, the market value of those companies can rise very, very dramatically uh, and, uh, because it's newfound wealth essentially at a time when the market really wants 
newfound wealth. So capital flows into the into those uh, into that sector, uh, and you see huge boom periods. In the 1930s, it was that way when the uh, the last Great uh, Depression, uh, and in 19 uh, 2008 2009, we also saw uh, for uh, for about three years uh, up through 2011 a major boom in the mining companies and the mining company profits uh, surged. So I got excited in uh, in this sector uh, and it sort of it just sort of dovetailed with my views of the markets and what was going on with the debasing of currencies and I saw this as a very major long-term theme uh, and so yeah I mean it was just a hobby it was something I was excited about and did and meantime worked as a credit analyst in the bank and made money uh, you know, and and, and paid uh, paid the rent that way. But in essence, it was my love. It was what I really wanted to do, uh, and that's why I started writing the newsletter. You know, if you're excited about something, you like to tell other people about it, right, Laura? Absolutely, absolutely. That's why I'm here. Yeah. And, you know, I'm uh, I'm looking at the time, and I can feel that today is just going to flow. And Jay, I'm going to have to bring you back in another uh, uh, one hour show because I know that there's so much there that we can explore. Um, we're probably about a minute away from the break, but uh, it's fascinating again for me because I never understood how a market can go from everything is stable to everything the the um, you know the Dow falling. And you just share that with me this morning. So if at some point I can get to better understand would be great but for now we're going to go into a two minute break and uh, uh, we'll be back uh, shortly after that with Jay to talk more and continue this very interesting conversation if you have any questions for us email me at l Ellis, l-e-l-l-i-s at trustedadvisoryboard.com Novo Resources Corporation, trading symbols NSRPF on the OTCQX and NVO on the Canadian Securities Exchange, is an advanced junior mining exploration company whose highly prospective assets are located in the Hammersley Basin of Western Australia. Novo's flagship asset, its Beaton's Creek Project, has an NI43101 compliant resource of 420,000 ounces at a grade of 1.5 grams per ton. With $10 million in cash and strong shareholder support from Newmont Mining, Novo looks to complete a feasibility study in the first quarter of 2015. Avino Silver and Gold Mines is a diversified, low-cost producer with operations in Mexico and Canada. Avino is growth-oriented and recently completed a major expansion at its Mexican operation and is on pace to double output in 2015. Avino recently partnered with Samsung CNT and is now an official metal supplier to one of the world's largest manufacturers of consumer electronics and builder of some of the most prolific engineering projects worldwide. Avino's shares are listed on the NYSE market and the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol ASM. If you want a silver lining in your portfolio, think of Eno. Oren Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay project located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource outlined by drilling thus far stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Oren is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over $200 million. 
when it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. I'm here with Jay Taylor, who's one of the most successful hosts on Voice America's Business Network. Uh, his show is very successful and amounts to about 150,000 to 200,000 monthly listeners. And if you listen to our first segment, you will know um, why. So, Jay, there's no doubt that you're passionate about what you do and how lucky you are to actually um, earn make money on something that you love and know so well. Um, we're talking earlier about um, a number of things, very many things, and the discussion could go in many directions. But just going back to the newsletter that you started a while back, where are you with that today? Because, again, I know that you've made, it, uh, an, made that a very successful endeavor. Well, it's I've continued on with it. It it hasn't been uh, it hasn't been so successful in the last five years. I would say we we, mm-hmm. you know, the mining sector is is sort of a boom and bust sector. So you have times when, uh, when it rains, it pours, as we say, you know, and 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 things are really really good. Then you go through times when, uh, things are not so good. I mean, it's not just in the precious metals sector, but you're uh, you know obviously seeing it uh, with iron ore. You're seeing it with copper. You're seeing it with in the in the oil sector as well. When economies contract, they, uh, it's, it's a tough time. However, there's really quite a difference between gold and those other commodities. Those are commodities that are consumed. Gold is, uh, is held in vaults because it is, it is money. Uh, humankind understand that gold is money. They have always understood. Uh, when they are free to choose, human beings choose, uh, choose gold as money. And Aristotle had some insights into that thousands of years ago. He said that gold, uh, you know, why is gold money? Gold, it has durability. That's why we don't use wheat. Gold is divisible. That's why we don't use diamonds. Gold is convenient. That's why we don't use lead. Gold is consistent. That's why we don't use real estate. And gold has intrinsic value. That's why we don't use paper money or well, it's not even paper now. It's, it's electronic digits. Uh, so mm-hmm. Aristotle explained that the characteristics of gold make it, appropriate for money. It's nature's money, if you will. The problem with it is that it's not easy to bring the gold out of the earth and to create uh, and, to, and to produce it. And so uh, politicians try to find ways usually to finance wars or whatever or to give goodies in exchange for votes. They create money out of nothing. They deceive the public, if you will, into thinking they can have something for nothing. And obviously, uh, you know anybody that that uh, that wants to look for truth sort of recognizes that that's that that is true. Sure. So yeah, so that's that's the that's the issue that uh, people just you know. Anyway, I'm sorry, you were about to ask me something else. No, that that is okay. As I said, it's a fascinating uh, episode where I'm learning so much uh, about it. You you kind of answered uh, why you chose gold, but. 
still there were uh, other choices. Was there personal uh, personal reason beyond what you've just uh, explained, a very logical explanation as to why gold is um, a, a different uh, way of looking at value and wealth? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, there probably were better ways. If, if my goal in life was to make as much money as possible, Laura, I think there were probably other places I could have gone to do better. I mean, mm-hmm. if, I, if I had wanted to really play the corporate game uh, and and be a part of that, I think I could have done done much better. I mean, I, I was an officer, but a sort of a middle-level officer, but my heart was never really in the corporate game. And part of the reason, I believe, Laura, was because what I believed was diametrically opposed to the game I was involved in, in the, in the, uh, in the banking system. I mean, I just said that in a fiat currency system, uh, you have essentially reallocation of wealth. I think it's legalized theft from the people that create it to the to the banking establishment and to the uh, and, and to the government. I mean, you see, Washington is just growing endlessly as it as it uh, increases its military industrial complex and its uh, its socialism and this and that. And it can only do that because as long as the world accepts the dollar as a currency, the United States has this ability to create these endless amounts of money. It seems up to a point, at least, where we can t- you know just cr- like it's not different actually than if you had a mafia don printing mm-hmm. money in his basement and then using that money to go out and buy up all the assets in the neighborhood. Well, that's what our government does. That's what all the governments around the world do now because they've all gone off the gold standard. There is no, uh, there is no limit, it seems, uh, to the amount of theft that can be created by, through the printing press, uh, except I think the markets are starting to tell us, yes, there are some limits even at that. But... Um, you know, it, it's just, it's just. Why did I get into this? I think in part because I feel so passionately about it. It is a moral issue, uh, and I believed honestly that that there was going to be an awful lot of money made by owning real money. Because, as history shows, uh, fiat monies they all uh, they all eventually uh, go to the dustbin of history. They they become worthless. And yeah. as we watch trillions and trillions of dollars being created to try to bail out the past sins. All we do is create and dig ourselves deeper into the muck. And that's what's happening. And that's why I've, st- I've stayed steadfastly. Now, we've had since 2008, 2009, a big bull market. But it's a bull market, Laura, that's based on air. It's not based, mm-hmm. it's not based entirely on reality. I'm not saying there isn't some legitimate economic growth in the world. There is. I will acknowledge that. But to a great extent, it's based on debt. It's financed with debt. It's not financed on actual capital and actual savings. So what we've done, essentially, by uh, adopting Keynesian economics, which, is ta- which taught that savings isn't important, essentially what you need to do is spend more than you earn uh, to stimulate the demand side of the economy. So w- what we've done is we've printed all this money, and people have to realize that money is, is manufactured with debt. Unlike gold, a gold-backed currency, you dig the gold out of the ground, or a silver-backed currency, you dig, dig the silver out of the ground, you have an asset-based uh, currency. What we have is a debt-based currency. So if you take out a mortgage to buy your house, you've just increased the money supply. You know, and you pay for that, uh, that house, that, uh, and somebody takes that money and puts it in the bank. The bank can lend it nine times over. You know, so uh, you know, $1,000 becomes $9,000 mysteriously in the banking system through the fractional reserve banking system. 
and, and, they, and they've actually gone up to 100 to 1 in some cases in terms of the leverage. So what we have is a worldwide system that, in which the debt has been growing exponentially, and the income, if it's growing at all, has been growing in a very slow, linear fashion. So if you can picture a chart where debt is growing straight up and debt and income, GDP, is growing very, very slowly, 2-3% at best, then you sort of realize that this game can't go on forever. So I sort of understood that and believed that to be true. Now it's tested my patience. My thesis has taken a long time, and I believe that, it's, mm-hmm. that, that uh, the policymakers have been able to keep the balls in the air much longer than I thought they could. But, you know, it stayed like today when the Dow is looking to open now almost uh, 800 points down, uh, that you start to realize this is not something I wish for, Laura. Not at of all. Course. You know, of nobody course. wants to see pain. But when you could see the uh, Dr. Peyton Yoder years ago setting the stage telling me and anybody else that would listen that this is a road to hell and disaster when you start to print endless amounts of money. History tells us that. This is nothing new. But sure. people want to believe in the tooth fairy, and so yeah. they do. And they perpetuate yeah. that myth, and then, and then you have to get everybody to go along with it as much as possible so the people who are perpetuating that myth can get rich from it. And that's what's yeah. been going on, I believe. Yeah, and, and it's very interesting because if I think back to, you know, and I'm not saying this, this with any uh, feeling behind it, pride or uh, shame or, but it's very interesting because uh, not only uh, my mother would have never had a credit card, sure. I remember her reaction to me having debt, whereas today as an adult, I have quite a lot of debt. And I have no problem with it. And you know what? What you're telling me about um, uh, it tasted, uh, it tested your patience. I think that uh, probably at the macro level, um, we haven't seen it that much. But if we look at individuals, and again, uh, what this recession, the last recession, did to people's lives, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think we can see this at the um, micro level. Um, it has ruined people lives and, and very many people because oh, you become yeah you become used to this is a new normal right and uh, yeah. um, and again as a decision making expert I would say or, or advocate um, it's interesting to me that we kind of end up justifying um, the very things that if we were asked in a certain or different environment, we would see that they're so wrong. I mean, the people you describe in the government positions or even in in other functions, very senior functions, who are part of the game, they're not dumb. I mean, no. they're smart people. And right? they're not. And they're not bad people. They're yeah, not bad, they're not people, bad think, people either. No, no. So, where do you think? What do you think from a decision-making perspective? perspective, sorry, it's causing that. I mean, how do they end up believing in something that it's obvious? Well, it's obvious to, yeah. I mean, I sometimes say that I think the biggest disadvantage would be to have a PhD in economics from Harvard when it comes to investing in the market. Now, as long as things work, as long as the Keynesian economic process uh, doesn't self-destruct, then they look like they really know what they're doing. I mean, look at uh, the you know QE1, QE2, all this stimulus, and the stock market has uh, almost you know doubled or tripled, whatever. It's it's gone up dramatically from the bottom in 2009. The problem is that uh, you know it's like any system has its limits, and so there's a limit to the amount of debt that can be uh, can be handled and sustained. 
you know, you you mentioned you have debt, and that's fine as long as you have a job. You can you can pay for it, and as long as that job pays you enough, you can you know, and you have some income flows, you can handle it. Um, but um, I, I've I've lost the, you, the the main thought here. The question you asked me to start with was. What do you uh, think that's behind? I mean, how oh, can yeah. such okay. smart people allow uh, such uh, flaws of decision-making to right. happen? Right. Well, I think that, um, first of all, this may sound a bit conspiratorial, but, but if you look at my first uh, show, by the way, back in March of 2009, was with a, an author named G. Edward Griffin, who's written a book called The Creature from Jekyll Island. And I would, I would strongly suggest to your listeners that they they pick up a copy of that book and read it because I think it explains the political economic system as it exists in America today. It's contrary to the founding fathers and what they wished to to give us when uh, when we kicked the British out of here in 1776. But but what happened was you, you who owns the Federal Reserve is the key. Where the money is and and uh, and what the Federal Reserve was created for was essentially to do exactly what it's been doing. It pretends to be our friend, and it's there to sort of even out, supposedly even out the business cycles. Well, the business cycles have become more and more pronounced since the Federal Reserve came into existence in 1913. The biggest depression we ever had was in the 1930s, and now I think we're heading for something, unfortunately, that could be much worse than the 1930s. That's, that's my true belief. Sure. And uh, so the problem is um, that everybody's been educated, the think tanks, uh, the Council of Foreign Relations, all of these organizations that are tied into the Federal Reserve, uh, they, they, uh, it, it's a propaganda machinery. I mean, do you think that all the people in the Soviet Union were stupid people that, that went along with communism and believed that that was the best system? They all believed it. Why did they believe it? They believed it because they were taught that as little kids. Your professor will give you a good grade if you give them the right answers. And the right answers is don't think, just repeat. And that's what we're doing in America. The educational system does not allow people to think independently. So, for example, there is a branch of economics, uh, Austrian economics, that is never taught in the universities. And that's the one that I believe in. So the Austrian thinkers had it right. They predicted the housing bust. They predicted the dot-com bust. The timing they didn't know. But they knew it was going to come just as surely as we knew that this one that's about on us now is is going to come and is in fact coming. And I see the Dow is down 989 points. Wow. I mean, this is just a devastating decline that we're having here. And it was predictable. But listen, there are people that profit from the system as it is. And they want to push that system as far as they can. And they don't care about the morality of it. Or they don't want to think about the morality of it because they're profiting from it. So that's what I think, and that's an answer to your question is there's too much vested interest. If you know, if you're a professor and you've gone and you've had a theory and somehow, and it looks like you're right, and then somehow someone else comes along and debunks that theory, your whole life is down the drain. Everything you believed in is no longer true. It's devastating, psychologically, probably financially in some cases. So I think that's why the system has to try to hold the big lie together as long as it can to, per, to, perpetuate, uh, to perpetuate itself because when it looks over the abyss, it's certain death. That's the problem. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, you know, you're talking to uh, someone who has been through some of the things that you uh, just shared. Um, I was born in Romania, so I lived in a communist country. And Mm -hmm. I know the, you know, I know propaganda when I see it. And when I first moved to Canada, I thought, you know, I mean, I live in Canada, not in the U.S. uh, But I, I... I thought, oh, my God, this sounds like propaganda a lot more than I remember it. But you see, I recognize it because I was a victim of propaganda. I was also a school teacher uh, teaching pupils the Mm. wrong history because Mm -hmm. that's what I was taught. So I only realized that the real history was completely different to that. On the other uh, hand, um, one of the things that fascinates me about my, uh, my science is how often we are actually completely unaware that our own brains play trick, um, tricks on us, yes. how often we're completely unaware about uh, uh, the decisions that we make and how biased we are in our thinking. And you just described that, you know, the fact that mm-hmm. we put, we invest so much into things that mm-hmm. we believe them to be true, no matter how much we're proven or w- what the reality is. So again, yeah. we're like a minute away from the break. Jay, I am sure you're going to have to come back and talk to me again for our listeners. This is fascinating. So um, in the meanwhile, we'll be back to talk some more and perhaps talk a bit more about uh, investing in gold and how people get started and some of the tips that you can share with them. Um, So we'll be back soon. Some things never go out of style. In the gold business, for over 100 years, high-grade Canadian gold discoveries have been in vogue amongst investors. Balmoral Resources has continued to deliver high-grade results from a series of new discoveries in Quebec. If you're looking to upgrade your portfolio in the fall with some golden highlights, learn more about Balmoral at balmoralresources.com. Balmoral trades on the OTCQX under the symbol BALMF and on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol BAR. Kalinex is a junior with major near-term catalysts. This tightly held company is advancing its projects containing copper, zinc, gold, and silver in Manitoba, Canada. Kalinex's projects are within 10 miles to Hud Bay's mine that has less than five years of ore. Kalinex has high-grade deposits and new targets with exciting discovery potential, with drill results anticipated shortly. Now is the time to learn more about Kalinex by visiting kalinex.ca. That's C-A-L-L-I-N-E-X dot C-A. Kalinex is publicly traded under the symbol CNX in Canada and CLLXF in the U.S. Oren Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay project located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource outlined by drilling thus far stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Oren is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over $200 million. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. 
If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Jay, thank you so much. This is extremely interesting for me. I know that I will listen to the show again, and I'll have a lot more questions to follow up with. Uh, you mentioned earlier the Keynesian model and, and the fact that it doesn't work. Do you, can you elaborate a little bit more um, on what it is and why it doesn't work? Simply because it's something that I have come across, and uh, I would personally like to know more. I'm that kind of person who prefers more than less information. Yeah, Keynesian economics, which we've all been indoctrinated with, and uh, myself included at Rutgers when I picked up my degree in economics, uh, it, it's, it's based on, on this notion that um, all you have to do is, well, animal spirits was one of the ideas that Keynes had. All you have to do is keep people thinking positively. And, and you know, if you need to do print more money and give it to them, go ahead and do that. The government should deficit spend. I mean, his idea was the government should deficit spend during recessions to stimulate the demand side of the economy and make up for the private sector that wasn't getting the job done. Uh, and then, uh, in all fairness to Keynes, he also suggested that government should contract its spending uh, and, and uh, you know, during the good times, which, of course, the governments never do because they don't want to tell people they have to take away uh, their candy and the, the goodies from them. So it's it's a one-way street, essentially. So politically, it's a one-way street. Uh, you deficit spend, you print money, uh, and you give people something for nothing. And, of course, what we've seen since the 2008-2009 uh, period of time, uh, we've seen zero interest rate policy. And what that really does is destroys capitalism. How does it do that? Well, can you imagine, let's go back to the... Soviet Union, where they used to figure out how many pairs of shoes or how many of this or how many of that should be manufactured in a given year. A few people sit around the table and decide to do that. Well, they never can get it right because markets can give signals constantly. Millions of decision makers collectively, the wisdom of that market uh, is much greater than, and I don't care how smart the guys are that sat around the Politburo. They, they, uh, and, but so that so that if you want to have the right number of pairs of shoes manufactured to meet the demand at the right price, you let the markets decide that. The same thing holds true with interest rates. And what we've seen now is uh, we're not allowing price discovery for interest, for savings, for capital. Uh, you can't have capitalism if you don't know what the price of capital is. And we don't know what the price of capital is because the central bank went in and printed 10 trillions of dollars of, of money to push the interest rates down to stimulate the demand side in Keynesian economics and, and to bail out their friends. Remember that the Federal Reserve is owned by major banks. People need to realize the Federal Reserve in the United States is not the U.S. government. It is corporate banks. It's large international corporate banks that own the shares of the Federal Reserve. And that is why they got bailed out at the expense of the American people. So in any event, my point is that you don't allow capital to be priced just the same as if you don't allow the, the price of shoes to be pr priced or the price of wheat or anything else to be priced in accordance with what the market demands. You're going to have either too much or too little of something. And, what, and, and so that also then 
amounts to malinvestment. So we saw in the 19, you know, leading up to the dot-com bust, we saw that, you know, the dot-com bust and all these companies had, you know, share prices went to the moon and then they collapsed. Uh, the telecom, we saw it. We saw it in the housing market, even in a, on a larger scale. Uh, capital was made free to people, very low price capital, liars, you know, all kinds of illegal and immoral things like, like liar loans and, uh, you know, and, and, and paying people essentially to, to take out debt. Uh, and that ended in tears. Uh, we're seeing it now. I think it, the big bubble now is in, uh, is in sovereign debt around the world. So this may be the granddaddy of all. But the problem is that if you don't, if you if you don't know what the price of capital is, then you then you can't your economy can't work. You're going to if you make it too cheap, mm-hmm. money flows into things that don't make any economic sense. If you make it too expensive, then you have a contraction in the economy. So the the founders of our country in America wanted to. In fact, it's written into our law: money is gold and silver. It's not. The Congress and the, uh, and the Supreme Court and others have just decided they don't want to pay attention to what the old-timers had to say, so they've gone out, off and done their own thing with printing press money. But that's part of the Keynesian story. In order to def- deficit spend, you can't have a gold standard because that will hold you to a discipline that people don't want to live by, and especially the bankers and the government doesn't want to live by because they've really been benefiting from this confiscation of wealth through the printing press. But... The Keynesian economics essentially uh, is, you know, a feel-good economics that works until it doesn't. And, you know, we, we, we've seen these bigger and bigger booms and busts that are coming about. And my biggest fear, Laura, is that the whole system may come down in a way that's much bigger than anything we've seen so far. I, I hope and pray I'm wrong about that. Sure. But, but this is what I see because, see, we've never allowed these bubbles to be self-corrected. After 2008, 2009, we never allowed the system to go back to where it needed to go. Same thing with the earlier one in 2000 uh, at the turn of the century with the dot-com bubble. We never allowed the system to shrink back to where it needed to be. We never allowed the debt to be cleared from the system so that we could have real honest growth funded by honest money. And until we do that, we're going to keep going through these spirals, the booms, the bust. But you'll notice in the meantime, what's happening is the middle class is being hollowed out. The major, you know, the amount of wealth that's flowing to the top one tenth of one percent. Mm-hmm. I've seen some numbers recently. I don't know if I can remember them, but the, it's just staggering. This is the greatest real allocation of wealth that we've seen. It's it's getting worse than it was in the robber bearing days of the 1930s. Uh, you know when the, when the government went in and started its uh, its laws to try to limit the size of corporations and stuff. Sure. So in, that's a long answer to your question, but there, it, I would suggest that people who are really interested in knowing and understanding how the economy really works to investigate the Austrian school of economics, and Mises.org, M-I-S-E-S.org is a good place to go. Uh, there, there, uh, you know, there have been. Uh, there was uh, Hayek uh, was was one Nobel Prize winner in, from the Austrian school. So the Austrian school is recognized by the intellectuals, but I mm-hmm. think it's preferred to keep it on the sidelines because it challenges the status quo. Yeah. It is a very legitimate. Ludwig von Mises was a brilliant uh, Austrian um, uh, economist that is that is highly regarded. Uh, uh, when you know, and, and quietly by by intellectuals, but they don't want it out there because it, it you know it threatens the status quo. 
Yeah, and 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 what I'm hearing and what you're saying, I mean, it, uh, uh, you know, the distribution of wealth, uh, the the more there is at the top, the more it taps into our own greed, um, and and wanting to do whatever it takes to get yeah, there. Whereas really, the the gap is so big, it, mm-hmm. it's not possible. But but we make we delude ourselves uh, that it is possible, and then we keep making worse and worse decisions about our own uh, you know lives and investments and and everything else it's it is quite scary if i think yeah. about it i mean it's scary of what it does to the um, entire society the mm-hmm. other thing that i also find fascinating from a decision making perspective um for such you know capable um i don't know Animals, <laughs> we we certainly take a long time to challenge um, theories that work before, but I don't know how well they work together. I mean, I find it in my own uh, field. You know, management consulting, the the management science uh, was created or started about 150 years ago, mm-hmm. and not much has changed. And so many things don't work today because the, the the complexity of business and and everything else has changed. Yet we're not we keep repeating that because yes. at times it, it's also you know easy and it's not uh, we know it. Mm-hmm. Does it work? Does it not? No, we'll just keep doing it because we know it and we've learned how to work around it or how to right. uh, manipulate it. So yeah, they try to tweak it a little bit sometimes. Yeah. And, and yeah. you know, I mean, we go back, the, the Austrian friends of mine go back and look at the 1930s and say it was an abysmal failure. That was the first test of sort of Keynesian economics in a, on a major scale. Yeah. Uh, and then we tried it in again throughout since that time. Uh, we, you know, the 1970s, but then the 1980s and the 1990s, when the dot-com bubble and, and that thing burst and we printed more and more money to try to bail ourselves out. Then, of course, the housing crisis, we did the same. And now I think you're going to see a return to quantitative easing again, probably. And you yeah. talk to people like Paul Krugman and, and people like that who say they never question whether the premise of the, uh, of the policy was right or wrong to start with. No, no, they know it's right because in their own minds, they're the gods uh, of the universe. It's hubris. And so it's a belief yeah. that, that they know what they're talking about and how dare you challenge them? Uh, and, and so it's not a matter. In Krugman's case, he says, let's do more of it. We didn't do it enough of it and quick enough and fast enough. And that's what Bernanke said essentially this time. We're not going to allow to happen to 1930s again. No, no, no. We're going to get out ahead of this. We're going to print more faster. And that's what he did. And it's not working. Again, it's yeah. not working. But will the Krugmans of this world go back and say, we need to test our theories. We need to question our premise. Maybe we were terribly wrong to start with. Not likely to happen, and the only time that's likely to be a change is when the system itself forces it. I'm afraid. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I often, uh, I often watch um, um, situations like this uh, unfold, and they're shown on television. And I often wonder uh, if there are, and you know, maybe more likely, I, I'm biased here uh, because of my science, but I often wonder if there. If any behaviorists or or cognitive uh, psychologists are are consulted, because you know it's very um, it's not that difficult once you start analyzing behaviors and how people react to certain things mm-hmm. uh, to see what will likely happen. Um, it, it's funny how 
fun is not the right word, but it's interesting how things don't translate from one point to another. Um, so we hardly talked about uh, um, gold, and we don't have long till close, but I do want uh, you to share with us some um, advice and some suggestions on how would people uh, become more involved and uh, invest in gold, because it certainly sounds a much um, safer and wiser bet for those who want to make money um, mm-hmm. and invest. Sure. No, I would say, first of all, people ought to try to clean up their own balance sheets and get rid of debt as much as possible. Uh, you know, I'm not, everybody's different, and, but if, you, if you're worried as I am about the system itself imploding, uh, then, then or, or your own personal situation, you never know what might go wrong in your life, and, and sure. so to have less debt is better. So my first advice is, as much as possible, clean up your balance sheet. Then I would suggest that you buy some gold, physical gold, and have it in a safe place, you know, and you're, if you can find, if you have a safe or some place you can you can keep it. Uh, you know, one of the reasons gold more than silver is because you, the value is contained in such a smaller uh, space. You know, uh, but I think also some junk silver makes a lot of sense too to have some of that around because those metals cannot be produced. Re, you know, cannot be brought from the earth nearly as fast as they're printing money. So the value is likely to be retained. It has been over a long period of time. Uh, gold keeps its value, silver keeps its value, silver is much more erratic. Uh, so I would say start with that. Then if people want to invest in equities, and I think equities, that's what I write about in my newsletter mostly, mm-hmm. I would say that people that don't have the time or inclination to study individual stocks could go out and buy a mutual fund. The Tocqueville Fund is an excellent one that my wife and I have invested in over the years. Uh, it's a good time to buy because it's very depressed Right now, we've just had a five-year bear market in gold, and I think gold is ready to, to start another sure. major run on the upside. Uh, beyond that, then, there are you know, individual stocks, and frankly, as I mentioned earlier in the show, these junior mining companies that actually find the gold in the ground and prove up viable deposits are the ones that can increase in value very, very dramatically, but they are also riskier. So yeah. depending on your risk profile, people sure. want to decide you know, how much of that sort of thing they would want in their account. There are some mutual funds that cater also more towards the juniors. Uh, and then if people are really interested, of course, they can subscribe to my newsletter, a little plug for, for myself here. But sure, I, I, cover, I, I cover various uh, mining companies, junior mining companies, and, you know, there are several uh, that I really, really like a lot, and, uh, and, and so people can follow those. Uh, I would stick to start with, you know, especially if your risk profile uh, yeah. is higher, stick with the producers and the, and the household names or those companies that are really producing and producing nice profits at these low gold prices. Then as the gold price rises, they should do even better. There's a lot of them out there now. I think it's a very exciting time for this sector. That's excellent. And you won't believe we have less than one minute. You have to promise that you're going to be back, Jay. Oh, I'll be glad to come back, Laura. (laughs) Thank you so much. It's been amazing. It was indeed a pleasure speaking with Laura, and I believe I may do well to have her on my show sometime soon, especially to explore the topic of psychology in the area of decision-making. And a special interest to me is the topic of mass psychology and the decisions a society as a whole make especially when it comes to investing. Next week, my guest will be Dave Kranzler. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. 
Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Novo Resources Corporation, trading symbols NSRPF on the OTCQX and NVO on the Canadian Securities Exchange, is an advanced junior mining exploration company whose highly prospective assets are located in the Hammersley Basin of Western Australia. Novo's flagship asset, its Beaton's Creek Project, has an NI43101 compliant resource of 420,000 ounces at a grade of 1.5 grams per ton. With $10 million in cash and strong shareholder support from Newmont Mining, Novo looks to complete a feasibility study in the first quarter of 2015. Avino Silver and Gold Mines is a diversified, low-cost producer with operations in Mexico and Canada. Avino is growth-oriented and recently completed a major expansion at its Mexican operation and is on pace to double output in 2015. Avino recently partnered with Samsung CNT and is now an official metals supplier to one of the world's largest manufacturers of consumer electronics and builder of some of the most prolific engineering projects worldwide. Avino's shares are listed on the NYSE market and the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol ASM. If you want a silver lining in your portfolio, think of Eno.